games on. Oh, I almost forgot. I'll be right there. We like sports and we don't care who knows. From shooting hoops to the Super Bowl. We like sports and we don't care who knows. Football, football, tennis, hockey. Hello? Hi, Sandy. Welcome on the show. How are you today? I'm doing fine, thanks. Great. To all our listeners out there, you're listening to We Like Sports on 94.3 New Haven Radio. I'm Jordan here with Zach. Uh, Sandy, thanks for coming on. Sure. So we thought we'd just jump right into it uh, and ask you a few questions since our time is limited. How's that sound? Okay, go for it. All right, so as uh, most people, especially you probably know, spring training is getting started. Everyone's looking forward to the new season. And the Mets are coming off a season where they actually performed really well despite uh, some injuries that really decimated their roster. Um, you know, I read an article recently saying that with the Mets' elite pitching, they really should be in win-now mode. Uh, they should really go all-in. And then another recently saying that the Mets' uh, ownership is actually considering raising the payroll a little bit uh, this season in order to make a World Series run. So that being said, the Mets haven't actually added many pieces this offseason. Uh, of course, they've re-signed Cespedes and Walker, two very key players, and they've gotten a lot of players back from injury. Uh, we're looking at most of the rotation coming back with Harvey DeGrom uh, and Mats, and then some key players like Duda, Ligaris, and Wright, who missed a lot of time last year. Um, but so I guess my, my question for you, Sandy, is, uh, what would you say to those critical of the Mets' relatively quiet offseason, at least in terms of adding uh, new pieces? And how do you balance the optimism of having your stars come back from injury with the realism that uh, they might not be the same players? Well, first of all, I, I don't think we we had a quiet offseason. I think we had uh, uh, we were very active early. Uh, we re-signed Cespedes. Uh, we um, tendered a qualifying offer to uh, Neil Walker. Um, and then at the tail end of, uh, the off season, we signed a couple of relief pitchers. And in the meantime, you know, we took care of some arbitration cases. So, um, change for change's sake is not always a good thing. Uh, and I'm, I'm, uh, certainly not afraid of change. And sometimes I think it's, it's, a uh, it's an important aspect of any team to, uh, inject new blood for purposes of chemistry and, um, uh, you know, increased capacity performance and so forth but uh given the injuries that we had last year and um the fact that many of our players wanted to come back uh so it was uh, easier to sign some of our our own free agents than it was actually to attract new ones uh and we felt that the quality was um was roughly the same um you know we were happy to have people back to the to the possibility that uh, some of our players are diminished. Um, really, the the only players that uh, I would be concerned about uh, their uh, sort of diminution in ability or or potential uh, are the older players. And I think it's you know true that you could argue that uh, perhaps David Wright uh, is a question mark uh, in that regard. But everybody else is young enough so that the injuries shouldn't necessarily, um, you know, diminish their their uh, potential, but rather I think, um, you know, having given them an opportunity in many ways to rest uh, and rehab whatever injury they had, they, they have the potential to come back even stronger than they were before. All right. Thank you so much. So you talked about David Wright. Uh, if we could go into that a little more. Um, so Wright, the longtime Met and now captain, missed most of the past few seasons with spinal stenosis and he's 34, like you said, a little older. As hard as he's worked, it's unclear whether or not he'll even be able to sustain a full season, let alone contribute production to this team. With guys available to play third in his place, specifically 
Reyes and Flores. What do you expect Wright's role to be this season? I think his role is going to depend entirely on his health. And uh, right now, um, you know, he is not at uh, a completely normal uh, spring training uh, mode. So, um, you know, we just have to wait and see how he progresses and uh, where we are uh, two weeks from now, um, two weeks after that, and then t- and then at the very end of spring training. But it, right now, it's it's uh, it's not really clear what his role will be. be- really sure what his physical condition I think that's probably the single health issue that we have that that uh, not only needs to be resolved but is uh, right now up in the air yeah I mean I think most Mets fans uh, including myself definitely hoping that Wright can come back and have a productive season to contribute uh, but I guess talking a little more specifically now about this Mets roster, one of the things a lot of people are talking about uh, is the surplus of outfielders, right? Uh, we signed Jay, or rather, we traded for Jay Bruce last year, um, which you yourself have mentioned the possibility of him moving at some point in the season, although he seems primed to start the season with the Mets. Uh, and there have been, you know, rumors of moving Conforto to first base, which of course then just raises the question of what the Mets do with Lucas Duda. Um, so I guess the, my question is the Mets have had a little bit of trouble in terms of balancing fielding ability. Uh, in the outfield, um, and with the with the power of bats that they have, you know, Cespedes saying last year that he would rather play left field as opposed to center, and of course he was battling a quad injury at the time. Um, I think a lot of Mets fans would like to see Gold Glover Juan Lagares get some time in center field as well. He's coming back from a thumb injury, so uh, given the Mets surplus of outfielders, you know, guys whose names I haven't mentioned are really uh, Granderson, then even you can throw Nimmo into the mix. Uh, what does your outfield, your ideal outfield alignment, look like for the Mets this season? I'm not sure we're going to have an ideal ali- alignment, and I, I'm not sure many clubs do. Obviously, you have to balance the uh, offensive production of a player with his defensive ability. Um, the fact that uh, Cespedes is going to play left field, I think, um, you know, eliminates any real flexibility there. And I think that it, it's a good thing that we keep him in left, in part because uh, I think it will. Uh, reduce the chance of injury in his case, and I think also you know the metrics suggest that he's a far better left fielder than he than he uh, might be in center field or or in right field. Uh, that leaves the other two positions. Granderson did a nice job for us in center. Conforto can play center. Lagares is a very good defensive center fielder, um, but you know you have to be able to to produce on the offensive side as well and. Uh, Juan not only has not been able to stay in the lineup because of injury, but uh, you know has not been the offensive player that uh, we would all like to see. So, uh, you know, you're constantly balancing, you know, the net benefit of a player um, against the, the sort of net benefit of another player. And uh, I, for one, tend to um, err on the side of offense rather than defense. Uh, but you know, we'll see what happens over the course of uh, spring training. The same is true in right field. We, you know, we have Jay Bruce, we have Conforto who can play over there. Uh, Granderson can play there as well. So we we do have some flexibility, but we've got some excess numbers as well. And um, you know, at the same time, we've got roughly six weeks between now and the end of spring training, and anything can happen. We can have an injury. Um, we can have players with a good spring players with a poor spring. I mean, the ideal thing would be for everybody to play well, and then we'd have some difficult decisions to make. But, um, uh, you know, it's not unusual that um, teams get 
uh, a little bit overbalanced in one area or another, and we happen to be a little bit overbalanced in uh, in the outfield. It was just a few years ago that we didn't have any outfielders, so uh, yeah. having one or two extra doesn't seem to be a problem. doesn't feel like a problem anyway. Yeah, it's certainly a good problem to have. Yeah, great. Thanks so much. So switching gears a little bit, we know you're a member of Major League Baseball's Rules Committee, and recently a pair of rule changes have been submitted to the Players Association, the first eliminating the pitcher's need to actually throw four pitches on an intentional walk, the other moving up the strike zone. There's also been mention of a rule that would place a runner on second base at the start of each extra inning. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the rationale behind each potential change and how you would respond to purists who perhaps want to see no rule changes at all. Yeah, well, there's always a group that uh, wants to maintain the status quo, but I think if you look at how professional sports have evolved uh, over time, uh, there you know there are always changes that are made, whether it's in uh, basketball or uh, football or even you know soccer. I mean, how long has it been since we had a three-point play in the NBA? I mean, it really hasn't been that long, but it's fundamentally changed the game and changed it for the better. Um, Passing wasn't really part of the game of football. If you go back to the you know 40, 30s and 40s, and uh, the rules that they've made to promote offense and to uh, promote the passing game, you know, have really changed the the nature of the game. Um, I think in our case, first of all, with, with regard to uh, the intentional walk, I think the elimination of the intentional walk is is simply it is more symbolic than anything else it's not really going to save a lot of time but i think it is symbolic of the desire to kind of move up the pace of the game uh it's really going to going to save very little time if you average the number of uh intentional walks per game and it's far less than one per game uh it's just not going to save that much time but i think it's symbolic of a desire to improve the pace of the game and so from that standpoint um you know i I, i'm in favor of it um i'm going to skip to the third one the uh putting a runner at second base uh in extra innings i think that the fact that that is being done at the lowest minor league level is indicative of kind of where we see its value um the minor leagues particularly at the lowest level you're talking about the gulf coast league in the arizona rookie league both of those are called complex leagues where they just play on facilities that play that clubs maintain for string training purposes there are very few people there and the impact of a extra inning game on the development of the pitchers on those teams can really be negative and so um you know rather than create a situation where you know the pitching is is getting goofed up because of an 18 inning game and uh you're, you're you're playing the games for development purposes anyway. I think it's uh, you know it's a wise rule to consider. I actually thought we should have applied that rule to to at least one higher league where fans routinely attended to get a feel for whether fans liked the rule or didn't like the rule. Uh, I mean, the fact that we're playing it in co- in complex leagues means that it's not going to really be, you know, a significant issue for people. But on the other hand, we're not going to really learn about how it impacts fans. So in that sense, um, I'm not sure the the experiment is going to be as extensive as it should be. But um, I don't see that one being applied at the major league level, um, certainly anytime soon. 
you know, with respect to the strike zone, uh, that would have a fundamental impact on the game. But I think you have to go back historically to understand that how we got to the strike zone we have right now, because I was on the rules committee way back when the current strike zone was adopted. You know, this isn't the first time the strike zone has ever been changed. It's been changed in the past. And in the past, the last time it was, it was changed to lower the strike zone uh, to below the kneecap. But the fact was at that time that umpires didn't call uh, strikes even at the knee. And the idea, and this was before the technology was available to actually train the umpires and provide feedback, the idea was that if, if you stretch the strike zone below the knee, that they would actually call a strike in the lower thigh area. Uh, lo and behold, with the advent of technology, we've been able to, to educate the umpires and train them to the point where they're actually calling the strike zone, as it's described in the rule book, and that is below the knee. Even though it was never really intended uh, when the rule was was uh, changed uh, to have that that ball called, it was really an effort to drag the strike zone down and hope that uh, while it wouldn't get to the to the hollow of the knee, it would actually get to you know the lower thigh. So um, you know, from my standpoint, um, now that the umpires are calling. Uh, strike as it's described in the rule book and are capable of adjusting to a new strike zone as it's described in the rule book. Uh, you know, I'm generally in favor of, of uh, raising the strike zone in order to introduce more offense into the game. And again, if you go back and compare what other sports have done, they've basically changed their rules from time to time to promote offense. And uh, that's true in football. It's true in basketball. And, um, there's no reason why um, we shouldn't uh, consider doing the same thing. I actually think there's some other rules that would would also be, be you know valuable and uh, uh, address the fact that we have so little offense late in the game because bullpens have become so dominant and they've become so dominant because you know a good portion of the time you bring in a reliever to pitch to one or two hitters and uh you know have this constant parade of relief pitchers which really makes the game slow down but in any event um you know i'm actually in favor of all three of those rules wow yeah it's very interesting i guess baseball is an evolving game uh and the history you mentioned brings up a lot of good points uh we know your time is valuable so do we have time for one more question sure Sure. So I guess this is actually a pretty difficult question. I hope you don't mind me asking, but uh, it's something that came up a lot uh, in the circles of Mets fans that I'm a part of, uh, certainly last season with the signing of Jose Reyes. So my question kind of has to do with discussing uh, how off-the-field scandals figure into your personnel decisions on the field. Um, so, of course, last year the Mets signed Jose Reyes, who had been a longtime Met beforehand uh, and really a fan favorite. Um, he had been involved in a domestic abuse scandal, and people are some people I know were upset about the fact that the Mets signed him. I personally thought... Um, it was good to give him a second chance. And then recently, of course, we had Jerry's Familia uh, facing um, similar issues off the field. So I guess if you could just comment what role, I mean, if any, if, it, if it's totally separate off, yeah. uh, off the field, on the field, but what role these scandals uh, play, at least in the decisions you make regarding these players? Well, I don't view them as separate. I don't view you know, on-field considerations as separate from off-field considerations. I think that you know we consider them both, and... Um, you know, have to try and weigh them appropriately. Um, but I will say this in the case of both Jose Reyes and uh, Familia, um, you know, it's one thing to 
sign a player who's been part of your organization, came up through your organization, a player you know well, um, and um, believe that you know the person is inherently good as opposed to inherently bad, and uh, um, that because they've been part of your family in the past, or maybe part of your 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 player family now feel some greater obligation to provide a second opportunity, um, you know, while at the same time insisting that they take responsibility for their mistakes, as opposed to going out and, you know, and signing another player based, you know, primarily on their ability and, and uh, disregarding uh, the off-field situation that may have arisen. So, you know, to me, re-signing Jose Reyes is very was very different than the possibility of, say, trading for or signing a player that we didn't know, we didn't owe a second chance to, we didn't have any um, sort of organizational relationship uh, or uh, you know history with the player, and and uh, perhaps wouldn't have been able to judge um, whether the mistake was. Um, you know, an aberration or something that was likely to be repeated. So, um, one, off-field considerations do come into play, and number two, um, you know, in the case of bringing back a player that used to be part of the organization and a beloved part of the organization, or or retaining a player uh, like Familia, I think is is very different than uh, you know than acquiring somebody from outside. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Which I think. has kind of the t- has kind of the the, the taste of uh, on field uh, talent uh, as the only consideration. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. The player who comes to mind uh, in terms of trading for a big name guy, maybe with similar scandals, the Raldis Chapman. Uh, but we know your time is very valuable, Sandy. Uh, and I know I'd like to speak for uh, both Zach and I here at We Like Sports. Thank you so much for coming on the show with us. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, I really my, appreciate it. My pleasure. And let's yeah, go Mets, my, my right? pleasure. I really I enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go Mets this season, Sandy. All right. Take care. Take care. Thanks, guys. Bye. So that was Sandy Alderson, guys, general manager of the New York Mets. We hope you enjoyed uh, that brief 15-minute interview with him. I know Zach and I are definitely excited to have the, uh, the, really the opportunity uh to speak to such a such an important player, uh, or rather, such an important figure in sports. Yeah, that was that was very cool. You know, we like sports is on the map, and uh, let's jump into our regular programming. So, starting with some big headlines around the sports world, we obviously have the biggest of headlines: Demarcus Cousins traded from the Sacramento Kings to the New Orleans Pelicans for Buddy Heald, Langston Galloway, Tyreek Evans. A 2017 first rounder from the King from the Pelicans and a 2017 second rounder from Philly and Omri Caspi will also be going from the Kings to the Pelicans. So we'll definitely be discussing this later, breaking down the trades. Was it good? Was it bad? For whom? But for now, let's just move on to. Yeah, definitely a huge trade. Um, something if you've been listening to our podcast the past couple weeks, you have heard us talking about: Is he going to move? Is he not? Definitely, I think surprising uh, to both of us to hear him be traded like that, but something we'll get into more later in the show. On uh, other news, moving to college basketball, Yale basketball actually lost its third consecutive game at home yesterday to Penn, falling 71-55. Uh, suddenly, after a team you know, showing so much promise, it seemed to be struggling a little bit. We know they're a young team, Zach, uh, and it's likely they'll make the tournament, but I think that the hopes of them perhaps upsetting uh, Princeton or even what looks like now a Harvard in the Ivy League tournament a little bit dashed. 
Yeah, Penn, a team that's at the bottom of the Ivy League, although, of course, surging with, I think, their fourth straight win um, of the season. But, you know, not really promising signs for Yale. They still look probably locked into that third seed, maybe the fourth. But, yeah, like you said, I don't think our results in Philly are going to be particularly exciting for Bulldog fans. Um, also, moving on in college basketball, we have a lot of other great games that happened this weekend. We had Kansas beating Baylor by two in Texas, West Virginia barely holding off Texas Tech in a double OT game, and Pitt upsetting FSU. All really great games. The college basketball season's really starting to shape up for what looks like probably a pretty interesting March. Yeah, Zach, college basketball, some great weekends. We know we're deep in conference play, uh, and we're looking forward to the tournament. That's a little bit on the horizon. Uh, in other news, the NBA All-Star Game was last night. The West beat the East in 192-182 in a ridiculously high-scoring affair, as most All-Star Games are. Uh, Anthony Davis, the All-Star MVP, scoring 52 points to actually set the record. Um, so I actually didn't get a chance to watch any of the games, Zach, but it looked like it was a pretty exciting game. Saw some cool highlights. Yeah, yet again another, you know, no one's playing defense, no one's running back. A lot of alley-oops, dunks, great plays by the great stars. It's really just, I think... A show for the fans it's not a competitive game i don't think anyone's trying to make it like that you know not the not like in the olden days as they say but uh also we have baseball spring training underway as you may have heard us mention earlier exciting for baseball fans you know to kind of see how teams are starting to shape up and with that let's move on to the hot clock Jordan, can you explain what the hot clock is for any new viewers? Yeah, so for those uh, listeners actually who haven't heard us, the hot clock is our segment where Zach and I each get one minute uh, to ask each other a question uh, and basically set it our arguments. So uh, we'll ask three questions related to sports. So, for example, I'll ask Zach a question. I'll have a minute to respond. Um, we'll do one question uh, not related to sports. So, Zach, I guess I can ask my question first, which is this past Saturday night uh, we saw the NBA dunk contest. Uh, something traditionally uh, exciting for fans, although – High-profile players haven't been play, uh, participating as much recently, but this year, no, uh, most notably, was a particularly unentertaining dunk contest uh, in terms of the excitement value. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit to what you think the value of the dunk contest is specifically, and maybe the value uh, of All-Star Weekend in general, uh, interpreting value however you want. Yeah, for sure. The value of the dunk contest to me is very, very minimal. I think the All-Star Weekend as a whole is really just a show for the fans, and some fans really enjoy it. Some people really want to go see these crazy dunks. Frankly, I think you can go on YouTube and find better dunks by professional dunkers, which for some reason they exist. But um, I think that a lot of people really like it. They especially want to see the big-name players. And unfortunately, the dunk contest has not had that in recent years. You know, We had the last two years with Zach Levine, and especially last year with Zach Levine and Aaron Gordon going head-to-head, really a dunk contest for the ages. Very impressive, despite the fact that the two players are not actually huge-name players. But years before that, a couple years before that, there was a lot of lamenting that the dunk contest is dead, that it's really just become uninteresting. It's hard to keep topping those performances week at, or year after year as they get more and more gimmicky and they need more showmanship. But I really think that this dunk contest especially was a bit of a letdown after such an incredible one last year. Yeah, Zach, I mean, you mentioned that it's a show for the fans, and I totally agree. That's obviously the point, really, of All-Star Weekend in general, aside from celebrating uh, you know, the best players in the league. But I wonder when it gets to a point now uh, where we have guys, I mean, LeBron saying a few years ago that he was going to participate. Of course, he hasn't necessarily made good on that promise. But, I mean, we're going from the days where really the stars, you know, Vince Carter in the slam dunk contest, even MJ, to guys where, I mean, 
sure they're great dunkers, but I think the fans want to see the high-profile players, and they're not willing to play. And I wonder if, uh, without kind of that reinjection of energy, uh, the dunk contest has kind of lost a lot of its value. Yeah, I think it certainly has. But then again, there's never really been, I mean, since the days of Jordan and these more high-profile players, there hasn't really been much actual value to winning the dunk contest. You know, we have players like Terrence Ross who have won, Nate Robinson won a couple times. These aren't players that come to mind as great NBA players. So it really is kind of, I think, a spectacle and a fluke more than anything. It's not part of a player's resume for how great they are. Yeah, that's definitely true, Zach. Yeah. All right. So your question. Recently, Carmelo Anthony was named as an all-star replacement for Kevin Love after he was injured um, over some potentially more deserving, certainly on the season better performing, at least less dramatic players such as Bradley Beal and Hassan Whiteside. Jordan, do you think that legacy should matter in all-star selection? And how about current team success? Should that factor into the decision? Yeah, Zach. So I guess I'll start. I'll work backwards. I don't think current team success should have anything to do with the decision. I think if it's an all-star, um, I mean, there's this tendency in every sport, every team needs to be represented in the all-star game. And of course, Melo wouldn't have been the only representative. Um, but I don't think team success should factor in. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm saying the same thing. But then again, so I think in terms of picking Melo over other players, I think it's a shame that all-star game uh, selections tend to be a part of a player's resume. You see it in every sport, you know, if, they, if they're not... Uh, if they don't have several championships, um, the the stats behind them is, you know, 10-time All-Star selection or, you know, 12-time Pro Bowl. And I think it, it gets to be a little silly when the fans get involved. You know, in baseball, um, the fans vote uh, for the All-Star game. It's a similar process, I think, in every sport uh, with, obviously, coaches and players also having a say in terms of who gets selected. But do I think it was necessarily a mistake and they could have named better players? Yes. Do I think it's also uh, pretty low stakes to name Melo, who's not having a terrible season? Of course, he you know, maybe isn't the best pick. Uh, I also think it's not a big deal. I mean, he's a replacement on the team. Uh, it's a show of goodwill to Melo, who has given a lot to this league. Uh, and I'm out of time, but that's what I have to say. Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly Melo has been a great ambassador for basketball for a long time. And, you know, certainly deserving, putting up deserving numbers. Great player. I do, however, think when you're mired in all of this muck and chaos in such a terrible season that the Knicks are having, it is a little maybe questionable those numbers mean a little less perhaps but you know he's not undeserving yeah it's a valid point i do think it's a little bit ironic um that he was the selection for the injured kevin love considering the trade rumors uh from a couple weeks ago certainly but that being said i'll give you my next question uh which is so you mentioned in the headlines we saw a lot of really exciting games in college basketball uh we know college basketball is very typically exciting but we also know uh the nba is a different game and, and you yourself are a pretty professed nba fan uh, and I was wondering uh, if you could explain, you know, if NBA versus college basketball, if you had to put them both on a platter, which one you'd choose and why? Yeah, for me, that decision is pretty clear. It's the NBA. I think it's a much, much better product entertainment-wise. I think college basketball, there's a lot to say. People really like that it's a much more defensive game. It's much The shot clock's longer, so it's slower. They can take longer for possessions, let them build. But I think that the NBA right now, we're seeing amazing basketball just some incredible offense from teams. You just have players that are such higher caliber. You know, almost every player in the NBA was a star in college. So it's almost like a college all-star game every game. Um, I think you're seeing much more kind of intelligent plays. College players, you really love to see the hustle and the energy that they put out there. And a lot of people say it's a pure game because they're not doing it for money. But I really think that when you're looking at players who go spend one year in college, learn nothing, maybe leave still thinking the earth is flat, 
Um, it's a little bit of a kind of joke, in my opinion. You don't get to really get attached to the good players, which is another thing I really appreciate about the NBA. So for me, it's pretty clear. Yeah, I mean, something I'll push you on uh, a second is I do agree with you. Um, I think the money thing should not necessarily be a factor. I don't think that makes it a pure game. But I think there's an argument to be made about the parity of the game, right? I mean, we talked about how the NBA typically is dominated by a select few teams. Uh, and we see uh, in college basketball, and whether that's due to the format of a single elimination tournament or whether that's due to parity across college basketball, I think is relatively debatable. But there is an argument to be made that college basketball is – uh, a game defined by more parity. Every team has a chance to win. That's a little bit more exciting for the average fan. Yeah, I actually don't know if I agree that college basketball has more parity. You look back a couple of years ago to a Kentucky team that went almost undefeated, ended up, I think, having five or six lottery selections. That's, considering most teams have no lottery selections, that's more stacked than you could say Golden State is even now. I'd think, I mean, they obviously didn't end up winning, but nonetheless, I think that when you're talking about parity, when you can just recruit and you have no limits on which players can come to your team, it's maybe by chance ends up having some more parity in some years, but there's no guarantee and there's no effort to make you there be any sort of distribution of talent like there is in the NBA. But I hear what you're saying. Um, so moving on to my next question, the Denver Nuggets seem to have found their foundational star in sensational second-year player Nikola Jokic. After trading for Mason Plumley, this is a team left at a pretty interesting crossroads with a mix of intriguing young talent such as Emmanuel Moutier, Jokic, Murray, Gary Harris, Juancho Hernan Gomez, and then also a group of talented veterans such as Danilo Gallinari, Wilson Chandler, Kenneth Freed, and Jameer Nelson. If you were running the, neg- the Nuggets... Which direction would you go with this team? Would you maybe ship off some of your younger players and assets to get some more impact players to win now, push for the eighth seed, maybe make a run in the playoffs, which they're currently in the eighth seed? Would you sell off the older veterans for younger players and picks, maybe fall out of the playoffs, but build up for the future? Yeah, Zach, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, so for now, the Nuggets currently sit uh, at 25 and 31. They're a game and a half up on the team behind them as they sit in the eighth seed. Uh, I think that's honestly an impossible question for me to answer because I think it's totally uh, the situation that Nuggets ownership and and financially they're in. I mean, if you look at it, if they were to go into win-now mode, right, what would win-now mode mean for them? For most teams, win-now mode means let's go to the playoffs, let's win a championship, right? I don't think anyone is saying, you know, the Nuggets make even a couple blockbuster deals. They're competing with the likes of uh, the Warriors. I don't think that's really on the table. So when you look at it that way, then the argument becomes, why don't we, we have these young pieces, let's look a little more toward the future. But I also think that in a way, that's also a little bit dissatisfying, right? You're a Nuggets team that hasn't necessarily been good in a while, um, and you want your fans to be excited about your team. And so even if that doesn't mean uh, making it to the playoffs, it might mean putting on a good product. Uh, and that's currently who they have right now. So I don't necessarily know where they should go. And I know that maybe is a little bit of a cop-out answer. Um, but I think it's impossible for them to look at to win now because win now, you know, there is no win now when, you, when you're competing with the likes uh, of the Warriors. But at the same time, I, I think this team is in a good position right now and it'd be a shame for them to demolish it entirely. Yeah, well, it's interesting. The Nuggets, I mean, different teams have different goals. I think for the Nuggets haven't been in the playoffs for a couple of years after, you know, being a pretty successful franchise for much of their history. So I think some teams really just their goal is to make it to the playoffs. And sometimes they ship off assets and kind of put themselves in undesirable places just to tread that middle ground and be relatively successful. The Nuggets especially don't always have, they're not exactly the most money-making franchise. 
Um, so it helps get those playoff spots. But, you know, interesting question. Yeah, I mean, you look at a team like the Knicks, right? The Knicks, also a pretty storied franchise. They've been around the league for a while. I think most Knicks fans coming into the season would have been very happy to be the sixth seed or the seventh seed or even the eighth seed in the playoffs. And, of course, that looks like it's off the table right now. But there is something to be said about just making the playoffs, even with the unlikeliness of winning that playoff series. There's something to be said about the excitement that brings to a fan base. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I guess my question is, Zach, um, LeBron recently quoted us saying there is no rivalry with Steph. We know they've gone head-to-head now uh, in the NBA championship a couple times. Thoughts? Is there no rivalry? Is there a rivalry? Tell me what you think. Oh, you stole one of my uh, things, uh, talking points for later. But I think that you have to take that quote in a little bit of context. He said people like to put us in the same pantheon of Magic versus Bird, Ohio State versus Michigan. Uh, he used one other example. I don't remember what it was, but he said to put to compare us to those three, it does them disrespect. And I think that yes, he is technically true, but to say there's no rivalry, he claimed we haven't fought enough battles. They've been in the finals the last two years, two incredible finals where LeBron has been otherworldly, and yet he lost one, won one. I don't know how you could say that's not a rivalry. Two teams clearly don't like each other. Draymond Green is on record having said that's a rivalry. We have fun going against them. We have fun beating them. It's something we want to do. It's Is it a historic rivalry for the ages? Maybe not yet. Could it be? I think so. I think their timelines are a little off with LeBron. Maybe, but unclear yet. Starting to decline soon as he is getting a little up there in age and especially minutes wear and tear on his body. But if they could hit... They will most likely play in the finals this year. If they have maybe one more finals, I don't know how you could say that's not one of the great rivalries. Yeah, I mean, the question I'd have for LeBron in response is, sure, I mean, you haven't gone head-to-head, back-to-back the way that maybe Magic and Bird have, but, I mean, who, what was the other rivalry in the NBA right now, right? If, if it's not Cavs-Warriors and it's not Steph-LeBron, what's the major rivalry? And I'm sure there are Leon, uh, our, our version of Tony Reale, looking a little funny at us. But, I mean, I, I think that really there's there's no argument to be made that there's a more important confrontation than these two teams and these two players. Yeah, I mean, to me, a rivalry is only a rivalry when both teams are playing at the highest level, and that's what those teams are doing. You know, Lakers-Celtics is a famous rivalry, but the Lakers are trash right now. The Celtics are really good. Those games aren't very interesting. It's not like they're playing in the finals. So I think, you know, it may not be a historic rivalry, but it's certainly in this day and age is probably the best rivalry we have in what is a very um, friendly NBA, to yeah. put it one way. Definitely one way to put it. Yeah. All right, so Jordan, my next question for you. Shifting to a sport we don't talk about much, soccer, or football as they call it. You're a big Arsenal fan, so let's talk a little bit. There's a lot of talk about their coach, uh, Arsene Wenger, and his role going forward especially after the 5-1 drubbing they had against Bayern Munich in the Champions League. What do you think the best move for the team is as far as keeping him in for the future years? Yeah, Zach, I mean, pretty tough loss um, to lose to Bayern Munich. They, it's now they haven't made it uh, past the round of 16 um, in a long time, I don't think, under Arsene Wenger's tenure. So I think, I think what it comes down to is the following. Uh, Arsenal is a premier football club uh, in England, and I think uh, what they will do is what Arsene Wenger wants to do. When Arsene Wenger wants to step down, I think they will step down and they will move on. But at the same time, I think this team owes him a lot. Uh, and if he wants to continue building his, you know, the the really the program that he's built, he he deserves it, right? I mean, you go back to 2003-2004, this is uh, an Arsene Wenger who led an Arsenal team to an undefeated season in soccer, which is unheard of, right? I mean, to not lose a game, of course, draws are an option, but to not lose a game uh, in a Premier League season is absolutely absurd. 
So I think they owe that to him. That being said, I do think it's time for them to move on from him. So I do hope he steps down. Uh, it's clear that there's a hump he can't get over, which is Champions League football. Uh, they haven't won the league in a long time. Sure, they won the FA Cups years in a row a couple years ago. Um, but it's a team that seems to be stagnating. and we have a lot of good players. Uh, and I don't doubt the work that Arsene Wenger does. You know, I could be, you know, um, biting my tongue down the road uh, when, you know, he's out and they're not performing at nearly the same level. But I think it's time for them to move on. That being said, I do think they owe it to him uh, that really what he wants is, is what the team will ultimately get. It's an interesting point. I think, you know, you see a guy, I think he's been there for, what, like 20 years or so. I agree. He has that kind of respect that you really have to honor his wishes. I think he's obviously a great coach. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's gets it's to the point where, you know, if Arsenal have finished in the top four every year of his time at Arsenal, which they have, it, you're hard-pressed to necessarily let him go, although I do think it's time for them to move on. Do you have anyone in mind that you would like them to sign? That just depends on who's around, right? I mean, football, football managers come and go. We see a lot of movement. Uh, you know, Pep now at Man City. Uh, I mean, people moving, a lot of moving parts. Josie Mourinho's been all around the block. Um, sure has. So, yeah, I mean, so so we'll see we'll see how that turns out. Although definitely a disappointing loss, especially after equalizing early to bring it to 1-1 and getting a key road goal uh, in the Champions League game. But... Uh, so for our listeners out there, what Zach and I like to do is ask each other one question not related to sports, give you guys a window into our lives, uh, let you guys know a little bit about us. So Zach, my question for you is actually a pretty easy one. I think I know what you're going to say, but what is your favorite place in the world and why? My favorite place in the world. That's tough. I have a couple favorite places. Um, right now, I would probably say it's Yosemite. Um, it's the national park, just one of the most incredibly beautiful places I've ever been. Just I love personally backpacking camping is just one of my true passions and i think there are very few better places to do it at least in the united states um i'm actually taking a class all about it's called wilderness in the north american imagination so we're studying sort of these ideas i just read some reports from john muir about his early writings in yosemite and describing them why it should be a national park got me very nostalgic i've done a couple camping trips there it's just a really incredible place the waterfalls, climbing Half Dome was, you know, one of the most uh, kind of beautiful, natural things I've ever done. So it's a really, really special place. But there are a lot of other ones up there. Buenos Aires, one of my favorite cities in the world. Hawaii is incredible. Uh, you know, a lot, there's a lot of good places in this world. You're a well-traveled guy, Zach. I try. All right. My question for you. This one is actually a little bit about sports, but it's about you. Get the uh, listeners to know you a little better. If you could only watch or slash follow one sport for the rest of your life, because I know you like a lot of sports, which one would it be and why? Zach, I do like a lot of sports, but for me, I think there's only one answer, and that's baseball. Uh, I mean, I think I've grown up like, you know, in terms of following all sports, I've started following all sports at the same time, you know, so uh, the first really baseball season I can remember is 2003, the Marlins beat the Yankees in the World Series. That's really when I started actively following baseball. Of course, I had started playing baseball before that. And I think around the same time I started following football, you know, I remember getting mad in 2004, Michael Vick on the cover, slowly got into basketball and such. So it's not that baseball necessarily predates all of the other ones in terms of my fandom, um, but it's definitely my most strong fandom. I, I, of course, play baseball. Baseball is my favorite sport to play. Uh, my dad grew up playing baseball. So it's been a part of my life for so long. You know, my mom had season tickets uh, for the Mets in the 80s. So I think in that sense, baseball has been such an important part of my life. Uh, I'd, of course, be sad to see the other sports go by the wayside. I do love following them. Uh, but baseball is the most important to me. And perhaps the uh, silver lining to that would be baseball is, of course, the longest season. Um, and so at least if I'm going to follow a sport, I'm going to be following it for the majority of the year as opposed to maybe following a sport like football, which has a much shorter season. Yeah, certainly picking a sport where you get the most games out of. So Yeah, most that bang helps. for your buck, maybe. Yeah. Um, so that's the hot clock for everyone. 
Uh, we're going to move on to our next segment now, which is winners and losers. Zach and I will each give you one winner and one loser of the week. So, Zach, who's your winner for the week? All right. My winner is Anthony Davis of the New Orleans Pelicans. Getting the help he finally needs. We'll talk a little more in the future about you know, exactly breaking down the trade. But I just think Anthony Davis, a generational talent, really a true superstar in the NBA, has been stuck with very little help for his entire career. And it's been a real shame. He's made it to the playoffs once, but it didn't go so well. I believe, if I remember correctly, it was a sweep by the Warriors. Um, But Anthony Davis finally getting... um, You know, I think personally that he is the prototypical center for the modern NBA, but he clearly prefers to play the power forward position, kind of now getting that center to play along with him that Omer Ashik or Alexis Ajinsa or many other players have not been able to be. So I'm happy for him getting that support from a New Orleans Pelicans team that didn't look like it was ever going to kind of give him that assist, that player to play with. Yeah, Zach, you know, it's funny because my winner is actually Boogie DeMarcus Cousins. We've been talking about it for weeks. You know, is Boogie going to get out of Sacramento? It's a bad place. And there's talks of him signing a long-term contract extension with the Kings, kind of making us all uh, scratch our heads. I think it's huge for Boogie to get out of Sacramento. And I think it's even more important now that, I mean, as you mentioned, he's going to New Orleans. I think that's a scary front court of DeMarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis. I can't, scariest in the league. I mean, no, no team, regardless of... Uh, how good they've been throughout the season is going to want to play that team, let alone play that team in a playoff series for seven games at some point. I think they definitely have pieces to add, but I think it's going to be a very attractive place uh, for free agents to come next offseason. Um, of course, we'll talk more about the trade, but Boogie's my winner. Who's your loser for the week, Zach? All right, my loser for the week are the many, many NBA fans who all they wanted out of All-Star Weekend was to see some Russell Westbrook-Kevin Durant beef. I think Russell Westbrook is perhaps one of the most petty players in the NBA. He loves to get after people, you know, drop hints, make Instagram those pictures of cupcakes after Kevin Durant leaves. But yet there was no real animosity between them on the court. You know, we saw Russell Westbrook catch an alley-oop pass from Kevin Durant. I think one of the coolest things would have been if Kevin Durant put that alley-oop up and Westbrook just didn't jump, let the ball go right out of bounds. But unfortunately, he was a bigger man and did that and uh it was, i think a shame as a loser for the fans who you know wanted some some drama yeah i think a lot of fans including myself uh get a little bit of enjoyment about it this beef between russell westbrook and kd especially uh those of us who maybe side with westbrook thinking that kd erred uh i definitely agree i mean that alley i think is a little overblown in terms of how much it meant a lot of people posting videos of it saying oh like a reconciliation i don't think it's a reconciliation oh, no it was i part don't of the i game. do not think they're good i yeah, just no, wish they were more public i agree that. it was a part of the game but in a game like the all-star game where you know each team scores almost 200 points and it's obvious the outcome of the game doesn't matter i think a lot of us would have enjoyed seeing westbrook do that but perhaps he was a bigger man yeah uh, i'll give you my loser perhaps it's a hometown uh hometown wow uh hometown one it's the yale bulldogs uh had the fifth longest active home winning streak uh, in college basketball prior to last weekend. Uh, they lost really a heartbreaker at Harvard, and I think a lot of people were saying, okay, um, tough loss, but but get back at it against Princeton. Lost pretty badly to Princeton, uh, and then lost pretty badly to Penn, a team they were supposed to beat. I mean, favored by six points going into that game. Um, and so I think it's, you know, to go from the fifth longest active home winning streak in college basketball to a three-game home losing streak uh, is pretty upsetting. It's pretty much dashed their hopes uh, making it to the uh, NCAA tournament. Of course, they'll probably make the Ivy tournament, but unlikely that they'll move on from there. So I think it's upsetting uh, for Yale basketball fans. I mean, we've seen Ivy League basketball compete very well in the tournament recently, so hopefully Princeton can uh, hold that torch. But upsetting for Yale fans who thought they'd get it back to back. Yeah, it's a team that really seems to have kind of gone off the rails a little bit, lost their confidence. Um, just nothing really went right for them the last three games. 
and it'll be interesting to see if they can put the pieces back together and finish the season respectably. But I think most fans have probably lost all confidence in them doing anything in the uh, Ivy League tournament, let alone the NCAA one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, things happen in those single elimination tournaments. So we'll look forward to the conference tournament, which happens in March. Uh, but Zach, let's get really to the, the the meat of our show or something. I mean, no, it's this late in the show, but something we really wanted to talk about, uh, which is this DeMarcus Cousins trade coming in last night. Really, uh, not necessarily out of nowhere, but I think shocking a lot of people. Um, and, and so I guess we've mentioned uh, the actual details of the trade. You know, DeMarcus Cousins and Norman Caspi being traded for Buddy Heald, Tyreek Evans, Langston Galloway, uh, and two picks, uh, one from the Pelicans, one from Philly. But, I mean, was this a good trade for the Pelicans? Was it a good trade for the Pelicans? I think a tentative yes. They're getting the now probably the most talented uh, front court in the NBA with Anthony Davis and Marcus Cousins. Just two incredible players, both of whom can do so much offensively. And while Marcus Cousins is a questionable defender, I think he's good enough. You kind of are going to have a really interesting thing where Cousins, who now has become a really talented three-point shooter, can kind of offensively, they can switch between the four and the five. Uh, Anthony Davis, a really great pick-and-roll big man. DeMarcus Cousins can just do it all on the block and step out and shoot. Defensively, they can switch a little bit. Anthony Davis may be a better rim protector. DeMarcus Cousins, um, you know, able to be that big man there. Anthony Davis able to chase people around the perimeter, a little more quick-footed. But um, it worries me, too. They have an incredibly thin backcourt now with really just Drew Holiday as their only real playmaker. Tim Frazier was a bit of a revelation at the start of the season. He'll be probably their backup, maybe their starting point guard. They might move Drew over to the two, but they're really, really lacking in depth there. And something that would make me very worried, especially when they're now committing so much money to these two big men and Drew Holiday going to be a free agent this summer. If they can't re-sign him or replace him and get reinforcements at those guard positions, you can only do so much. They, they might have to play DeMarcus Cousins at point guard. Um, you know, they, they need some more help. And they just lost in Tyreek Evans, maybe not an incredible player, but a really talented playmaker. And now they don't have very many people that can make things happen with the ball, run an offense. Yeah, I definitely agree. On the surface level, this looks like a fantastic trade, or at least a very exciting trade. I mean, everyone, how could you not be excited about bringing a player like DeMarcus Cousins to your team? But I think I think you're right. There is a reason to be, uh, maybe skeptical is a little bit too strong of a word, but but at least you know you're, it's a tentative yes from you, because I think a lot of it depends on what happens this offseason. You mentioned guys like Drew Holiday, and I wonder if players will be more willing to come to New Orleans. I mean, New Orleans is a funny city, uh, rather a fun city. Uh, I was about to say, there's a funny video of them telling DeMarcus Cousins that he was traded uh, while he's giving a press conference during the All-Star game, and he's saying, yeah, like, New Orleans is a great place. You know, obviously, now he knows that he's going to spend some time there. So I wonder if players will be willing to take a pay cut uh, to come play with these two, these two big guys. Um, but I guess on the flip side, what does this trade mean for the Kings? Yeah, this trade for the Kings, I mean, I think it's the just culmination of years and years of inept management it's really probably i mean i think knicks fans and especially knicks management are you know just ecstatic that the tension's away from them and their ineptitude but i think the kings are by far the most poorly run team in this league you know we have right starting from the top with vivek ranadive moving down to vlade divac who you know great player in his day was just kind of handed this management job with no management experience really didn't know how to manage a basketball team and has just made so many mistakes. 
mistake after mistake, uh, draft picks that they have taken and either not developed or just the wrong players, um, just really not working well. And so I think, frankly, I understand that they probably did have to make this trade. They, I totally understand. DeMarcus Cousins, they were faced with either giving him a $210 million extension, would be the biggest contract in the NBA um, over this offseason, and committing to him for the, the foreseeable future. Actually, a new part of the CBA is once you make do that designated player ex, um, extension, you then cannot trade them for a year. So they'd be stuck with him for at least another year. And really, by many, many accounts, a kind of toxic player to a franchise. Someone whose negativity and who's just kind of bullies other teammates. Um, a lot of people apparently hated playing with him. A lot of people apparently hated coaching him. Um, but such an otherworldly talent. And so I think for the Kings, this is really just admitting we screwed up so many times. We're giving up. We're going to just take a couple steps, many, many steps back and do what we need to do to get back to zero. We're so far down. We just need to get back to zero. And I think that's you know horrible for Kings fans. Really a shame. They have this brand new, by all accounts, incredible arena and just not a product worth putting in it yeah uh, i definitely agree and you know, interestingly sacramento currently sits in the nine spot behind denver so i mean i'm sure we'll see them uh really plummet uh farther toward the towards the bottom but, now as the season progresses but do you know what the big joke is what's the big joke zach that their pick which i'm sure will now become very valuable they traded it they didn't trade the actual pick but they traded swap rights with philly philly who's not that many games behind sacramento at the moment um so it seems likely that they will end up not even reaping the benefits of becoming now one of the worst teams in the NBA. And if they get a, one of those really, really top picks, we'll probably have to give it to Philly and take Philly's, you know, probably still good pick. This is supposedly one of the deepest drafts, drafts in a long time. But nonetheless, just, I mean, all you can do is shake your head at years of poor management. Yeah, that's a good point. It's almost ironic then. Uh, so I guess, I mean, another trade now, just to jump ahead that we have the opportunity to talk about before we close out our show is, uh, Serge Ibaka being traded, right? The Toronto Raptors receiving Serge Ibaka for Terrence Ross and the worst of either a Raptors or a Clippers first round pick. And so um, it's an interesting trade, Zach, right? I mean, we saw, uh, I'll just give you my thoughts before I let you talk, but I mean, we saw a Raptors team perform really well in the playoffs last year with a guy like Bismack Biombo, who's no longer a part of that team. And so, you know, from my perspective, it's really a filling uh, of that void that they had. That being said, uh, Orlando looks to have gotten the worst of the deal here. I mean, you know, getting a guy like Ibaka and then uh, not really able to do much with him. Um, but I mean, what are your thoughts on the trade? Yeah, to me, a lot of people are railing Orlando for it. They're saying they traded Victor Oladipo, DeMontis Sabonis, and Ursan Ilyasova basically for Terrence Ross and a late first rounder. That's a bad trade, without a doubt. But I think there's sort of, you know, in economics terms, I like to call it the sunk cost fallacy. It's already, they've already done that first trip part of the trade. Now they have Serge Ibaka, soon to be a free agent who they will either have to overpay for a poor fit on their team or let walk for nothing. So I think I respect that they did what the best thing they could do. You know, you can never know what the market for a player actually is. I believe that this was probably the best deal they could get just because why wouldn't they have made a better deal if they could? But I think it's a real shame. I think, you know, Rob Hennigan, GM of the uh, Magic, probably should be on his way out. He has also... If we want to talk about incompetent management of franchises, he's certainly up there as well. But, you know, looking over to the Raptors, I think it's an incredible trade for them. 
I think it's really just about time that they make that last win now move. They might have a couple more auxiliary moves to make, but the power forward position has really been a hole for them for a long time. And they filled it with Serge Ibaka, a guy who theoretically might be the perfect fit for that. They have defensively Jonas Valanciunas, not necessarily known for his defense. Serge Ibaka hasn't been as good as he was a few years ago in um, OKC, but potentially a really strong impact defensive player. And he's become a really good three-point shooter, someone who can do a lot without needing the ball. And that's what you need when you have guys like Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan really hogging the ball for most of the time. And as they should, they're so talented. But I really love that move. It's in an Eastern Conference that's actually looking surprisingly top-heavy and looking like there is going to be a lot of competition for that um, Eastern Conference spot and especially for the finals. The Cavs maybe not as much of a lock as they might have been in the past. You really like to see the Raptors kind of, they were sliding a little bit, had a couple bad, a little bad stretch. You like to see them uh, stopping the bleeding and hopefully actually gearing up for a really strong playoff run. Yeah, definitely exciting uh, in terms of the Eastern Conference playoffs picture. Uh, you know, we don't always see these big names traded, but uh, before we hand it over to Leon, we'll just give you some quick notes on All-Star Weekend. So Kristaps Porzingis, uh, the Latvian uh, wonder on the Knicks actually uh, won the skills challenge, which is surprising because it's typically won by guards. You know, previously guys like Steve Nash, Damian Lillard, Dwayne Wade. Uh, so interesting that a big man's won the last two years, the Carl Anthony Towns winning last year. Something we could talk about perhaps in a future uh, mm-hmm. future show is kind of uh, what this means in terms of this multifaceted big man. Uh, Eric Gordon won the three-point contest a little bit surprisingly. Uh, and then Glenn Robinson the third won a pretty boring dunk contest, which we covered. Uh, so again, this is We Like Sports. We're going to give it to Leon. He's our version of Tony Reality to tell us where we messed up. Leon? Well, thank you, Jordan and Zach. Um, as you and our faithful listeners know, nothing's make nothing makes me happier than uh, providing stats and letting you guys know how you ended up wrong. And so this week, I'm happier than the city of New Orleans, which is celebrating Mardi Gras, Anthony Davis's record-breaking All-Star Game MVP performance, an upcoming visit from Jordan Liebman, and received DeMarcus Cousins in a trade so lopsided that uh, the NBA 2K video game considered it invalid when an SB Nation reporter tried to perform it yesterday on owner mode. Um, so starting off, I wouldn't dare correct Sandy Alderson, uh, the Mets GM, about his own team. But I do have an interesting stat to support his comment that uh, Cespedes is better off in left field rather than center field. So I have uh, crunched the numbers provided by uh, Baseball Info Solutions. Thank you, Baseball Info Solutions. And come up with his total defensive runs saved above average, which is basically a defensive, uh, defensively focused wins above replacement. Uh, pretty much as good of a defensive stat in baseball we could come up with. Um, and just last year, uh, his score on that was negative seven when he was playing center field and plus four in left field. Uh, and for his entire career, uh, both at the both with the Mets and uh, over in Oakland, uh, he had a negative 24 score uh, in center field and a positive 36 in left field. So the stats clearly showing um, a uh, more successful uh, tenure in left field. Uh, moving forward, there's a worthwhile fact about the All-Star uh, game selection process that was not brought up earlier. Uh, there was a change actually uh, this year uh, to the system in response to Zaza Pachulia's ridiculous support from the entire Republic of Georgia. Fan voting is now only accounts for 50% of the selection process, with the remaining 50% split between the media and the players. Um, 
In addition, Jordan, uh, Yale basketball's loss to Harvard was actually at home, as you later pointed out, but you originally pointed out that that game was over at Harvard. Um, and then finally, um, I believe um, Jordan kind of mentioned this earlier that I was completely disgusted uh, um, uh, during the debate about what is the strongest rivalry in the NBA right now. Unquestionably, it is the rivalry between the Golden State Warriors and the Oklahoma City Thunder. Thanks to the drama between uh, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, there was a video of them refusing to acknowledge acknowledge each other's existence um, in the tunnel uh, over at the All-Star Game in New Orleans just yesterday. Um, that's all I got this week. Looking forward to next week. All right, guys. Thanks so much, Leon. Uh, thank you, sports fans. Again, this is WIBC New Haven 94.3. This is Jordan and Zach on We Like Sports. Uh, it's been a great week. We're glad to bring you this week. It was exciting for us. Um, we'll see you next week. Yeah, thanks so much. We like sports and we don't care who knows. Throw me the baseball. Now toss me the pigskin. Now feed me the rock. Now give me the rock.